Welcome back to the Doctor Who Flashcast. I am Jason Snell. Uh, a little sick, a little under the weather, kind of losing my voice. Uh, actually, I found my voice because I couldn't talk at all yesterday when special number three, The Giggle, aired. So we are flashing a day after. Again, it's a slow flash right now. It's just you're 60 years old. You get a little slow. Uh, Eric Ensign couldn't be on this episode, uh, but we are joined, as always, by Chip Sutterth. Hi, Chip. Hi, Jason. Spice up your life. Uh, indeed. And our, fulfilling our Edmonton content quota, Annette Weirster joins us sitting in for Erica. Hi, Annette. Hello. And shall I just say, <laughs> oh, wow. I can't do tones with my voice right now. So thank you for doing that. You're um, welcome. It would be dangerous. I'd miss some of them. So I was thinking it, and then I was glad to see that in one of the extras, I think the YouTube thing where they talked to Neil Patrick Harris. Spice up your life. Not as not a definitive Spice Girls hit in the United States, and and he pointed out everybody in the UK knows that it was a number one in the UK. It barely broke the top twenty in the United States, and I have no memory of that song whatsoever. Anyone else? I recognize it. I don't. It's not like the first one that's going to jump to my mind. Um, so perhaps it slightly crawled higher in Canada, but yeah, Maybe. it's not like the Sounds first like one I would think of. I recognized it as Spice Girls though, immediately. Mm. Yeah, I am not a voracious consumer of Spice Girls content, and yet that song had earwormed itself oh, wow. along with their uh, bigger U.S. hits. So in- interesting. Yeah. I was, you know, this was different from um, this was different from. Uh, say Britney Spears' "Toxic," um, right? Which was a which was a bigger stateside hit. Mm-hmm. But goodness, I uh, am more of a "say you'll be there" kind of person. But uh, I appreciate the Russell T. Davis Doctor Who needle drops when they happen. This is a uh, I think you could officially call it a mad episode. It is mm-hmm. a very much remember when I said last week, Chip, that um, it felt like a mid-season Russell T. Davis episode. Well, this was really a Russell T. Davis finale, wasn't it? It Wasn't it a a real, complete Russell T. Davis series just concentrated Mm -hmm. into three? But yes, this this checked all the boxes. This was end of time-ish. This was Journey's end-ish. This Mm -hmm. was Last of the Time Mm Lords-ish. Yeah. Really? um, Yeah. Yeah, brought back so many memories of all those big operatic finales and well, you know it's well, a you know it what specials you're to... right it, it, they are supposed to be big i think i think it's the idea you know what you're going to get with rtd um and i think that there was some speculation when he came in uh when he came back as to you know how much has he learned um and how different everything's going to be and I think uh, we saw some hints um, in Shooty Gotwa's appearance, which we'll get into later, I'm sure, uh, about just what different styles, what sorts of different flavors that RRTD is adding to the palette. But RTD is going to RTD. And boy, did he RTD. He did. Mm-hmm. I think that I've been rewatching, actually, because I got that full, complete set of all the modern Doctor Who DVDs. So I've been watching a lot of who lately and 
I feel like, yes, absolutely it is the same RTD, but there is something else that feels a little more polished, a little more mature, a little more cohesive, I think, than he has been in the past. And I actually really appreciate because I felt that sometimes people were like, oh, thank goodness RTD is back. We can just erase all the mess of the last series. And I really appreciate that he has very strongly and decidedly throughout the series said, oh, no, I'm holding all that uh, as canon. And I'm sure we'll talk more about canon. Uh, And Uh, so I've really appreciated because I was I was a little nervous about him coming back because his series era is not my favorite era. Uh, Of course, I like it because it's all Dr. Hugh, but I feel a lot more confident going into the so this new era. You said confident, and I was going to say that would be the word that I would have used to say what is Russell more of now. I think mm. I mean he is more seasoned. He yeah. has done he has done some of the best work, if not the best work of his life, in the intervening time. He didn't just. I mean, I'm not throwing shots at Stephen Moffat, but Stephen Moffat sort of has been casting around to figure out what to do with his life since he left Doctor Who, and there hasn't been an answer yet. Sorry, Stephen Moffat. Um, Russell T. Davis went off and made, among other things, It's a Sin, which I think is his masterpiece. And he comes back to this, and I've, I not only has he grown as a writer, but I think his confidence is just through the moon. It, it's through, you know, it's it, his confidence. He's done this job before, but he also has had time away to think and watch, you know, other franchises in the era of streaming and had a lot of ideas. And I think that's why he took the job. I think he said, uh, I know how to do this. And he's going to just do what he wants to do. And that's the confidence part of it. He's not, I, I think he was the 2005 series. He was bold, but he was also trying to repair something fragile and didn't want to ruin it. And uh, he doesn't care. He he knows he has great confidence in what he's doing. He's not trying to, trying to break things. I mean, well, he is. He is trying to break some things, but not the show. But his confidence is just supreme, where he's like, I am going to make big decisions because it gets me what I want, and, and it's on the screen. And I feel that in a way that I, I never even did in his first run, when he was still a pretty you know, confident guy. That's the, thank you for saying that, because initially when you uh, said you know he's more confident now, I had a hard time imagining early... RTD as not being confident, you know, he, but the more you described it, I think early RTD was stubborn. Sure. And current RTD is confident. Um, He was never going to back down, but there is something, you're right, there's something more, there's something more, um, it's not just bombast, it's, um, I am one of the greatest television writers in British history and I've got this show back that I know uh watch me run yeah I think the original run that he was in was how do I bring this thing that I love back to TV in a way that modern audiences will care about it mm-hmm. and the premise of this run so far only three we've seen seems to be Doctor Who and he said this in interviews Doctor Who deserves the same treatment. It is one of the global science fiction media franchises. It deserves the same treatment as Star Trek and Star Wars and Marvel. Not on the budget of that necessarily, but that is his premise. And he's like, I will do anything to do that. And that is my palette. And like, he's not trying to constrain himself um, in, in terms of, I just want people to like it again, which is sort of what the first 
run was about was just reestablishing and and this is like taking it to a whole new level it seems to me what he's trying to do we can judge mm-hmm. how he does obviously but that's what it feels like he's doing to me there's just something there and he has i think he's a better writer than he was before he's still got the same wild ideas um that he did the first time i mean meta crisis what happened the by regeneration is not that far off from the meta crisis from the meta crisis right? mm-hmm. it is a wild idea because you can tell he is steeped in doctor who lore and he's like there are no rules, right? I, I, I keep coming back to that, which is he knows all the canon and he and I, I don't want to say he doesn't care because he does care, but he doesn't feel like he needs to adhere to literally anything if he has a better idea. And, and that struck me this time. Absolutely. Um, and it's a it's a jigsaw puzzle of a, a series and not the not all of the pieces fit together and they're not going to fit together right um by regeneration is on the face of it if there is anything resembling internal logic in doctor who by regeneration is a stupid concept (laughs) it is flatly stupid it is pulled out of his nether regions it just comes out of nowhere there's no precedent for it there's no breadcrumbs leading up to that it's just this is going to take things in a different direction it's going to make people feel a certain way i'm just going to do it and i'm I, i am actually here for it um i the analytical part of my brain really wishes that it had made more sense and rtd in Doctor Who, picks his moments to say making sense is beside the point. And so we got the 14th Doctor and the 15th Doctor next to each other. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, I've been watching some of the the extras since we had extra time. Right. And there's uh, the, I can't remember what their after show is called, but there's an interview with of Russell T. Davis saying basically, one, he did it because he's always wanted to put the previous doctor and the new doctor in the same episode and have them interact. So like, that's his one of his motivations. And then he's at another point, he says, well, I'm going to do something new. And you know how fans always love it when I do something huh. new. And then he chuckles. Mm-hmm. And he's just he knows that people are going to either love it or hate it. Yep. And he just like you said, He's confident in this decision and he's going to go for it. And as someone, I don't really care that much about canon. I, I think like making things logical and if you went off the rails too much, you, you, you know, you got to hold some sort of logic to hold the show together. But I, I just don't, this doesn't upset me that much at all. I, so I'm here for it. Yeah. I think um, in the end, I think again, it comes down to him saying, although he's completely aware of canon, uh, and what the rules are supposed to be. In the end, he knows that canon shifts all the time in Doctor Who, and the rules shift all the time. And that's okay, as long as it serves the show. And I love that clip. I don't know whether that was in the YouTube behind the scenes or the Doctor Who Unleashed, but um, there's so much VAM now for mm-hmm. Doctor Who. It's Welcome back, Russell. I mean, it's it's amazing how much there is. But in the end... It's all done for a dramatic purpose, right? It, unlo- I would say unlike the Metacrisis regeneration, which I feel was done for publicity, where they literally had him start regenerating at the end of the first part 
so that there's yeah. a week where the newspapers in England can talk about did David Tennant just regenerate and who's the next doctor or, or that or the next doctor episode, which was the special with David Morrissey, which was also to generate publicity. And it was a fake here. That's not the point. The point is what you said in that, which is the point is, wouldn't it be great? It's the 60th anniversary. There's usually a multi-doctor something as a celebration. And why is it in Doctor Who because of the construction of regeneration that you can't have the outgoing and incoming doctors collaborate on a scene together. One of them has to leave and the other one has to come. And his thought was, what if I don't do that? And it has a side effect of not only does the doctor get to meet his replacement and work with them, but you get to have a regeneration story for once that is not a death, mm-hmm. but is a kind of, in this case, the mega happy ending version of a regeneration story while the show goes on. And thank you. (laughs) Some Wayne's world shout outs. Um, And the, and that's, I mean, I think that's why he did it. Right. I I think in the end, that was the bottom line is that he wanted to see David and Shooty together. And all the rules say you can't. And he, he's so confident that he says, I don't care. (laughs) It's better if they have a scene together. I have heard, and seen uh, criticism of that um, several different places about, you know, this this is David Tennant stealing focus from Shooty Gatwa. Um, and I've got a couple of responses to that. Uh, one is it's literally a baton handing um, off scene. Yeah. Uh, Hug got, and everything. You've got, you've, got, you've got the 14th Doctor sort of parked in the corner Um in my head canon he's probably going to become the curator at some point you know you know you know he's he is he's doctor emeritus and so he's parked in the corner and and he has given shooty got with his blessing and shooty got what goes off to be the doctor doctor going forward so there's all of that and the second thing is i i really do feel like these specials unlike probably the christmas special um they're like for BBC audiences, they're for old fans. You know, Disney didn't do a whole lot of direct promotion of right. these things. Um, RTD has said in a couple of places that the real marketing push happens for Shooty Gatwa and for the brand new series one of Doctor Who. Um, and I think that Shooty Gatwa is going to get all of the attention that he deserves with the launch of this Christmas special. For all intents and purposes, if you don't know anything about Doctor Who, if you didn't watch these specials, Series 1, Episode 1 of a brand new series called Doctor Who with a new charismatic character who's going to be running off in the TARDIS. Right, and that's the start mm-hmm. of it. This is the sort of interregnum or the coda, and it's for the fans, and it's for the the fans in the UK, and... And yeah. and then 60, we'll go on. 60th anniversary specials looking right. backward. Up up to now, the definition of who the doctor is has been whoever is the star of the show. But there's never been a question because there's not like another doctor out there. I mean, there's always the case, and I think Russell D. Davis has thought about this, that you could always bring back another actor from the past if you wanted to. And that he he I think there was some discussion at one point of like, what if we just do a season with David and Catherine? <laughs> and just say it was in the past and then we'll move on uh the the difference now is that um that canonically in the story there's another doctor hanging out there but i think in the end 
what is very clear is, well, yeah, but the guy who's starring in the show every week is the current doctor. That's mm-hmm. how it works, right? Like that, it, you, can, you can say, well, canonically, it's not the case anymore. It's like, yeah, I know, but who's the star of the show? It's Shudigatwa, who, dare I say it, now tells us to like and subscribe on at the end of every YouTube video on the Doctor Who YouTube channel. Shudigatwa, the, the regeneration, yep. the real regeneration has occurred. It's now him and not David Tennant. He's the current doctor. And although I will say, you, you mentioned this idea that Russell T. Davis said, Chip, about David is parked, which is interesting because, you know, you can start the car up later. Parked isn't mm-hmm. yeah. permanent. And I, I don't I don't really buy the, oh, David is parked. I, I um, like to the point where this story engineers him his own TARDIS that's in the garden mm-hmm. there. And, and, and which is already be, which is already in use already for in use joy trips exactly so you can say okay he's going to be the curator and this is where he's and that literally revisiting the tenth doctor's face is the first of a long line of revisiting old faces as you become the curator and you be, ha, are in your retirement but you know I would not put it past Russell T Davis at all that the fact that there's another doctor out there and another TARDIS out there is not going to be used at a future point in time perhaps even within the series as a twist or a special and also there is a very specific line of dialogue i don't know if you all caught it which it's a beautiful moment emotionally which is when shudigatwa hugs david tennant and says you know i'm fine because you healed we're time lords we do this out of sequence which i think suggests that they are still connected and that presumably david tennant's doctor gets to live out a life and we can argue and they can change the candle later because it's not specific. And then perhaps regenerates into nothing and feeds back into Shudigatwa at that moment in time. Or perhaps turns into another Time Lord. Who knows? That's what the toy maker thinks about all of this. But either way, it's just, you know, it's just out there. And it's not only a beautiful moment, but it's the suggestion that um, the rules are different. And that David Ten- we, can, we can see David Tennant again whenever we want. If we want. I think we will. Little prediction. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter, Shudigat was the doctor. And I think it was handled really well where I think it's clear from not just the publicity but from the text of the story that, it, you know, like you said, Chip, baton hold handing off. There's a, there's a, a salute, a hug, a salute, a farewell, and then the last shot is Shudigat while going off into the future. I mean, I don't know how much clearer it could be. I, I interpreted that the same way, Jason, with that line in particular – to me, what it said, not that he is going to be becoming different and regenerating to something else, but that at some point, his regeneration will loop back to that exact moment in time and become Shudi Gatwa. So it's like he's like right. a little, and this is how I'm interpreting it. I'm sure everyone else has many things, but that he's like a little loop out of time mm-hmm. that is like taking the time to do the work, so to speak, which is kind of a beautiful concept for the um, exhausted doctor who's like always a little heartbroken let's give you some time so i i thought that's how i interpreted that line yeah it's a good interpretation um it also gives the doctor a believable reason to be on the beach to uh you know he's got a he's got a purpose in taking time you know he's recovering from burnout you know um this that has very specific emotional resonance for me as i uh changed careers and am trying to do something new you know i feel like um yeah i feel like he's the doctor for me uh you know in the in the garden making plans and doing different things but also healing 
Um, you know, he's got a purpose for staying put because right. he has a responsibility to shoot. He got was a doctor. Yeah. That's his mission now, right? Is mm-hmm. to, is to rehab and feel better. Although I, I, I think, I think it goes without saying that it does mean that if Russell T Davis at any point when they're not shooting another series with Shudi Gatwa, if he's like, why don't we do another special with David and Catherine? Right. It's like, okay. Like literally no work needs to be done to set it up. You can just say, Oh, here's an adventure they had. And, Absolutely. and it doesn't take could away be a from unit spinoff with, with the Kate two of them showing up and, Mel and, and working with unit in, yeah. in London, you know, could be, so, yeah, could be yeah, Dr. Who by a, there is, any other name. There's, there is a precedent for a doctor being a, uh, scientific advisor, um, On Earth? and there, mm-hmm. you know, talk about, talk about needle drops, you know, that kind of a, that kind of, kind of cameo would be the equivalent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's part of the Hooniverse now, right? I mean, Russell T. Davis is trying to build up this more interconnected thing where it's not just, I mean, who knows about budgets, who knows about the future of streaming and Disney's budgets and the BBC's budgets, but the idea that, you know, one of the reasons, just a theory here, one of the reasons that it's hard to do a lot of Doctor Who is that it's a hard shoot. The actors burn out. The actors only take about three. I mean, Shudigatwa, we just saw him. He's very soon going to be through his second series shooting. At which point, is he two-thirds done with being the Doctor? And we just met him. But shooting Doctor Who is really hard, is what I'm saying. And I wonder... You know, if part of the story here is, can we make it easier by having some other things that we can do in Doctor Who land that allow us to spread out, you know, the, because the, the regular show just can't be on that often uh, production wise. But if you've got different actors, you could be you could stay in production uh, much more often, you know, basically all the time, but without forcing your lead actors on your main show to be working 12 months out of the year. And I wonder if that's part of the plan here, too. I don't know. Um, I don't mind it though. I think there, there are, look, there are fans who are going to argue from a position of bad faith that uh, they're going to be able to say, Oh shoot, he's not even the real doctor. He's just a clone. And David Tennant's the real doctor. And you just watch. And it's like, I, I don't want to spend a lot of effort on those people. Cause those people shouldn't have any effort expended on them. They can believe what they can believe, but who's the star of the show. Uh, as of now, it's Shudigatwa, And I can't wait to see the Christmas special. It's very exciting mm-hmm. to have that. But I also kind of love, the idea that David Tennant, and maybe if you believe Russell's kind of wild theories that aren't in the text, and so we just have to sort of, until they're in the text, they might be true. His idea that um, maybe that this act by the toy maker has retroactively caused by regeneration throughout the Doctor's timeline, which I think, Annette, to your point, the idea that there's this loop, actually, it's kind of beautiful, right? So the idea is, um, on Andr- I think what he says is on Androzani, Colin Baker heads off with Perry and Peter Davison wakes up and is like, huh? And gets to live a life as the fifth doctor. And then at the end of that kind of wraps around and, and, and we would say pours back into, into Colin Baker. It lets you use those actors at their older ages. And it means the doctor, every doctor who dies doesn't really die. They also get to have a retirement. That's kind of beautiful. It's appealing. Uh, I agree with you, though, that uh, until it's in the text, yeah. I'm, it's just as Occam's Razor tells me that Russell, Dave, Russell T. Davis is having fun. Yeah, and I think he has mm-hmm. a plan, honestly. I think he's like, right, because he's talking, He they've written season two, and they're talking about the specials before season one. So, you know, he has to pretend that th- this is it. 
but I don't I don't believe it. I think he's got a plan of how to take advantage of parked David Tennant at some point down the road. Who knows? But until it happens, um, then it's just a possibility. That's okay. Um, we, I do want to yeah, go ahead. Uh, I do want to say that one of the I think one of the reasons that we're having so much fun having these conversations. Uh, this episode, this episode, this finale, whatever you want to call it, more so than I think any other uh, regeneration episode in the modern era, um, this fills me with a sense of possibility. Um, everything, everything else has been the old doctor um, dying, the new doctor being born, and there's a button. Um, and there's just not much to go on, just generic, uh, excitement for a new actor playing, taking the role. But this story left us with a lot of potential story hooks and, um, and, and, and stuff like that. So I'm, 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 I'm really buzzing, um, after, after this episode with the possibilities. And I think that a, a good portion of that is how the episode was written and where he took it. And Shudigawa does stuff. I mean, it, it's such a big deal to have uh, the plot be resolved with the new Doctor instead of the new Doctor sort of showing up and saying something cryptic and crashing the TARDIS at the end, right? We get to see him. It's like a little sample sampler of Shudigawa to hold our hand. It's just so canny, so canny as a producer on Russell's part, I think, to say, well, we got him for these specials. But this, these are with David and Catherine, so you're going to get a lot of the old fans back and some new curious viewers. How do we get them forward into being excited about Shudi Gatwa? And the answer is put them on the screen and have you be like, oh, he's interesting. And then say, well, in two weeks, there's a Christmas special. <laughs> so stay tuned, right? And like, it's, it's, it's so smart that we, we got to see him. Took, took the new doctor out for a spin. I like it. And can we just say uh, to everyone, I, and I feel like this is part of why I'm not worried about Tennant still being in play, is because Shudi Gatwa showed up oh, man. and held his own against mm-hmm. Tennant oh, and Neil Patrick Harris and the three of them on screen together. And you're like, oh, wow, this is pretty um, amazing. This is powerful. And I did not feel that he was lesser of a doctor, but he showed up in with his own energy, with his own kindness, with his own. Um, I don't know. I was just like, what do the kids call it? Riz? Yeah, is apparently, that what it is? I'm too old to know what. Apparently, that is. they call it Riz. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, no, he's got it right. I mean, I I watched Sex Education. I know he Me he too. had it, but to see mm-hmm. there, he is playing a very specific, I think, very interesting character. Eric on Sex Education, very interesting character. A lot going on there. Complex backstory. A lot of emotions. Um, which gave me great confidence in Shudigawa as a performer. But to see him performing as the Doctor and being like, yep. Because again, part of the beauty of Doctor Who is you get to see often very talented actors do a take on a character. And unlike the three different Captain Kirks or the three different Mr. Spocks where they're basically doing a take on the same character. The beauty of Doctor Who is they can put their stamp on it. It is both a new character and a fi- uh, and a regular character we know at the same time. And it's a beautiful like acting challenge and writing challenge to say, how do you do this? And so to see Shudigatwa come out of the gate and be like, I mean, he says right away, you're me, David Tennant says. He goes, no, I'm me. Uh, it's so good. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I'm definitely me. 
I'm exactly me, right? Whatever he says there is so good. And he just infuses that, that role from the beginning. He's absolutely the doctor and absolutely his version of him. And, uh, yeah, give me more, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. I'm glad we got to see that much of it. Like not, not, not even like the plot is resolved, but it's like, like the end of time or any of those, right? It's the plot is resolved with 10 minutes to go. There's 10 minutes of goodbyes and, and, and shooty got what gets to be part of that. There's the two Tardises hits one with a hammer. It becomes two There's little Looney tunes. I loved it because it's the toy maker. It's already, there were already guns firing flowers. It's already a little Looney tunes. Um, and we get to see him at the controls. Um, also really underrated moment, I think is the moment where David Tennant goes in the left Tardis and goes, bucks and then walks out <laughs> like this isn't mine <laughs> goes over to the other one um I, I wanted to talk about the toy maker if you don't mind neil patrick harris very talented guy they they it, i can't believe russell t davis didn't write this part for him because it's like literally in this episode you will mm-hmm. dance and sing and do card tricks and do puppets and like various accents that are bad accents that are kind of intentionally bad accents. Cause he's a, he's a baddie who's bad. Um, and I, you know, I can't fault Neil Patrick Harris. I feel like he is working super hard here. I don't love the toy maker as an idea because he seems so arbitrary and undefined. He's from another realm. He can do anything, which is like, Oh, I mean, what do you even do about that? Other than the doctor warning them he can do anything. There's nothing more to be done about that. And even his one trait beyond the showbiz, which is he loves to play games. I think it's intentional, but it's kind of ridiculous that the only two games that are played in this entire hour of TV are cut for high card and catch. Um, when I, I, I don't know, obviously Russell made this decision with this character, but it left me feeling he was not, he, he was a lot of flesh, but not a lot of substance because he's, he's obsessed with games, but doesn't play any interesting games where I thought there might be a, I don't know, gamesters of Triscalian or move along home to use a couple of Star Trek examples. Kind of, we love games. Everything we do is about games. And instead, I don't know. He just, it, 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 for such a big performance, he, it just felt a little empty to me in terms of his presence in the episode ultimately. Cause I mean, they literally they play catch and he drops the ball and that's the end of the episode. Um, what did you all think of, of the toy maker? I'm a big Neil Patrick Harris fan. And I, I also am really surprised this wasn't just written for him. Cause I can't imagine anyone else, playing that role I don't I don't know a lot like I haven't seen the toy maker from the past and so I was expecting to see a little more like I like the part when they're lost in the um his storefront in all the hallways and sure. uh Donna's getting attacked by super creepy dolls <laughs> those things are so yeah that, that's I a good love, bit and yeah his, and his puppet show Billy... with dead companions was really was fun yes and that that doll face thing is that they used on tv is like that's a thing that they really didn't exist in the world uh right so we can all have nightmares literally about that um but that's so, all, yeah that's all the stuff where he like scares people but it's not actually like his his plan he's just doing yeah. that to 
to that, be that annoying. Is, I didn't think through that. I think that is a good point that he's just sort of <laughs> tormenting. So it's like it would logically, again, make more sense if everything was framed within a game. But in a sense, he's being playful. Um, yeah, that's true. I, I, I didn't, I didn't mind it. I like the little, um, the little puppets too, with all the companions, and be like, yeah, you, you served all of those companions rather poorly. Um, in but the end. and the doctor keeps saying, well, no, no, but there is extenuating circumstances, which is uh-huh. fascinating on a meta level, right? Because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it, you could say, yeah, see. Like on the text of the show, it's like, yeah, but Bill was fine because her consciousness survived. And he's like, well, that's okay then, right? And, and and then the critics of how those companions were treated would say, um, see, it's not okay. Just because you have a science fictional solution for it doesn't mean you didn't yeah. kill off the companion. I also do wonder if it's a little bit Russell T. Davis saying, everybody complains about what I did to Donna, but look what, look what Stephen true, Moffat right? did. That's like, uh, Which companion has been treated well? Yeah. Chip, Toymaker thoughts? So a lot, a lot, um, Neil Patrick Harris's performance carries a lot of weight for me in this one. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the grand annals of American actors playing villains in Doctor Who, who did a better job, Neil Patrick Harris or Chris Noth? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, um eric roberts nope (laughs) nope it's chris roth right (laughs) no i'm joking chris Roth from uh yeah from law and order no no no, definitely not so so neil patrick harris's performance is spectacular um i was i was not expecting him to be as menacing and 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 to have such an such an evil smile going on yes. in 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 the early going. I thought it was really captivating, and as the episode goes on, um, the toy maker becomes a little more flat as a concept, and I think that that's partially due to the fact that we are dragging out because it's the sixtieth. We're dragging uh, a weird, omnipotent supervillain from the Hartnell area era into the modern day and i think that that may have been a decision that didn't serve the story very well but i can forgive that a lot because of just the strength of neil patrick harris's performance as well as um his chemistry with tenant and gatwa and uh with tate you know um so um count me as a fan of the toy maker as portrayed by Neil Patrick Harris, um, there are some things that hobble the character. Um, RTD, uh, you know, we're, we're citing VAM all over the place because there yeah. has been so much VAM. So much. Um, mm-hmm. But um, RTD recognized, and there was a lot of concern going into this thing, you know, if it's a toy maker, you know, the toy maker is a racist character from the 60s. Um, there is stuff that doesn't work about that character. And one of the things that RTD does uh, is when he has opinions about the about uh, the problematic aspects of previous characters like the Toy Maker and Davros, you know, he decides that he's going to do something about it and it's going to be kind of big and it's going to be uncompromising and it may itself be a little problematic. So what he does with the toy maker is he 
uh, instead of um, Orientalism, um, he goes into making fun of Germanic culture and accents and making fun of British culture and accent, I suppose. Um, and, um, and a little bit of French in there. and Yeah, but yeah. 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 You know, equal so, opportunity gender of various cultures, as well as a little bit of racism in that one scene, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is which is kind of weird when you're talking about a um, metaphysical entity that is no more human than it is Dalek or right. Zygon or whatever. Um, but he is. But he's going to be an uh, uh, he's going to be an image of white supremacy. Um, it's so. The Toymaker is a little complicated as a character, and I wonder if a different villain played by Neil Patrick Harris with the same kind of flair and panache might have had a little bit more narrative heft to it, Mm. but it's the 60th, and it's the Toymaker, and it being a villain from the past gives you the chance to sort of you don't have to set up who he is. You just give a few lines of exposition and there you go. I was also surprised at how much I cared about catch because it's <laughs> such a simple thing. And you're just like, Oh, great. Cause I thought the same, the game being the cutting the cards was so, so underwhelming, but I thought the catch part, uh, because it was shot well and produced well and, acted well actually had a lot of tension and i was getting a little vertigo when that you're getting close to the edge of, edge of that uh unit right. helicopter pad <laughs> i'm like oh just don't fall over and i was ready for uh the toy maker to fall over but uh, he didn't but it i did find yeah it was simple but they did produce it well enough that i felt invested and it was kind of a fun way for the three actors to interact together yeah, it was silly. Um, it was, you know, they set it up. You know, uh, you know, he, he talks about ball being the first game at the beginning and gives yep. it a bit of a menacing edge. And then we have a game, uh, a game of catch at the end. Uh, they shoot it well. It's, um, it is silly, and just like uh, by generation is silly. You know playing a game of catch for the end of the universe and then having all kinds of acrobatics involved in it, you know, um, you know, one doctor running up the other's back and things like that, you know, it's silly, but there is enough panache to, you know, to make it mostly work. I mentioned there's enough panache in the toy maker to make him mostly work. I think, Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, and I'm gonna I'm now gonna double down on the fact that this plot actually reminds me a lot of a Star Trek episode, an original Star Trek episode. And mm-hmm. I mentioned the Gamesters of Triskelion, but there are a bunch like this. But follow me here. A lot of classic Star Trek episodes were that the crew encounters an omnipotent being. Right? An omnipotent being, an energy being, a, so they look like a person, but they're not. And and Chip, you mentioned that this is what the toy maker is. Something in the water and then or in the air, or in the drugs in the 1960s. I don't know, but because he's a <laughs> toy maker, also a character from the same period. Um, and in the end, they what what happens is the omnipotent character, um, and it could be you know Trelane or the 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 cat's paw aliens or whatever. There are so many Star Trek episodes like this. 
mm-hmm. put Apollo, put the, I could keep going on, uh, put the characters through trials. And the drama is, I guess, you're watching about how the characters deal with these horrible circumstances that they're placed in. But at the same time, it's problematic in the sense that there's no real hope that they're going to get out of it because this they're so overpowered by this villain. So it's more about can they keep their dignity while they try to figure out some way to escape. And this this strikes me as being very similar in the sense that most of the things the toy maker does to our characters are playing with them, uh, not challenging them to a game. And when that when those moments come, including the end where David Tennant and Shudigawa both say, "I challenge you to a you know to a game," um, that 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 line at the end, I mean, it's so much Captain Kirk being like, "Aha!" But and then confusing androids until their heads explode or whatever. It's that moment of like, and but now we can end this because I know you will have to play a game with me, and that part is simple, and and that's how it's structured, and. and Although I could say, I don't know, you've got an omnipotent being that just cares about games. Couldn't you do a whole episode where the games are the thing? It's not the story he wants to tell. He just wants to bring back a villain who's the puppet master of the literal puppets and uh, and have some, some big scenes and it's a special. So I think the structure is a little weird, but it's actually really familiar and I wouldn't be surprised if that was floating around in the back of Russell's mind when he wrote this because it does feel a little like a classic Star Trek episode. Everybody gets toyed with by the omnipotent being for a while and then our main character goes aha, I see a loophole and they're like, no, you tricked me with a loophole and the end, right? Basically, uh, I don't know. This is my theory is that this is actually a Star Trek episode. Uh, I'm going to stick <laughs> with it, but it's okay. It's just It's just funny because what all the colorful stuff that that the toy maker does is not playing games. It's absolutely not playing games. The games are boring. I mean, catch is they make it exciting as an action sequence, but in the end, I kept thinking, why don't you just throw it over the edge? They can't catch it then, um, and that never happens. Oh, speaking of which, I also wanted to mention the other thing I really appreciate about this because it felt like classic Doctor Who, which is people die. And that doesn't always happen. I think that moment where the three guards turn into balloons. And oh, jeez. And, and yeah. then one of the balloons has the screaming head of the guy who just got turned into balloons. And Kate looks at the doctor and he says, they're dead. And that's it. And then later, the Kate says, what about the people who are out here on the helipad? And and the toy maker says, I think they're still falling. Thump. Um, I, you when know, he's dancing... And he throws Kate into the wall and t- like uh, spins Mel off. Like those, yeah. it took that scene, which could have been funny and act and and made it very menacing because right? she thwacks into that wall hard. Yeah. And it was it's like violent. good performance yes. on her part and both their parts. But it's like it's sort of like it's funny. Look, they're tangoing, and then he just it was so violent, uh, which made it very menacing. Like, we don't know who those guards are, but the fact is that the fact that they turn into balloons, that we see the one screaming in the balloon, and the doctor immediately says mm-hmm. they're dead, um, increases the the level of 
It changes the tone. It increases the level of kind of terror of the scene. It makes the toy maker like it get, really makes you feel like we're not all trapped. This is not the musical episode of Doctor Who where we're going to have fun and we're going to dance and there's going to be flowers. It's like, no, a maniac is killing us while the Spice Girls play. And that is a different kind of vibe. Also, turning them into balloons reminds me of another Star Trek episode where they turn uh, <laughs> some of the members of the crew into little tiny styrofoam blocks. But um, I'll just leave it there. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it, it is... I just Doctor Who used to have big bigger body counts and we definitely I think there's this like yeah but as a family show do we want to kill off a lot of people but I think this is the exact right level of it which is you got to have stakes and you got to show the villain is truly villainous and that honestly I think that moment of the guy screaming in the balloon is like an indelible Doctor Who horror moment and I'm glad it's in mm-hmm. there even though it is terrifying. Yeah, me too. Although you've just made me think of uh one of the flaws with this story perhaps is, you know, it begins with the world in chaos. Right. Um, the giggle is, um, you know, it's messing with uh, humanity's worst attributes, uh, anger and self-righteousness. Uh-huh. Um, you know, um, very on point for 2023 politics. Very Russell. And very Russell T. Davis social commentary. Very too. much so. And um, we figure out what the problem is. And then we never see the problem again. Yep. The doctor goes to 1923. The uh, laser destroys the satellite (laughs) Satellite, to buy them some time. The chaos on the planet is completely forgotten. And you could argue that, you know, there's more interesting stuff to focus on with um, with the toy maker and the doctor and then the doctor. But this is... This is another example of RTD being RTD and what some old school fans who were ready for Moffat um, may have been dreading. But he will jettison stuff that is a distraction from where he wants to go in the end. Yes. The, The chaos on the planet served its purpose to get us into the story, and now we're not going to worry about it. It yeah, no, did feel I like agree. a bit of a letdown to me because I felt like you are making a social commentary and a similar one to the blue, uh, the wild blue yonder, where the the not things were saying they were attracted by our rage, and maybe this is planting seeds for things further. I don't know, but our our desire for war and rage and anger in both these episodes and then like in this one it's like we aren't held to account or asked to change or do anything it's just like that is a piece of us we're a bunch of angry folks yeah yeah it is i mean the cliffhanger which by the way it is it is sort of sad that they 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 reuse a piece of dialogue from Werner Cribbins and they have a double in the wheelchair so they can mm-hmm. say oh you take care of granddad and they move on because he wasn't available to shoot it and then he died um but honestly that cliffhanger at the end of episode two is very much just to provide a cliffhanger and I, I think that part of the mm-hmm. oh it's chaos and this is all going on and and one of maybe the weakest thing in this whole episode is where the doctor stops that guy in the street and he says oh well let me tell you the plot of what's happening in this episode that you just <laughs> came into in in this long it seems like it goes on forever. like well we just started two days ago and it's all this and now we'll be, but i'm always right and and yeah it is it's there to get the doctor and he doctors immediately picked up by unit. Right. So like, it's really just there to serve the cliffhanger. 
and then they have to immediately e- explain the plot by that guy, and then unit comes and takes them away, and then the story begins at the at the higher level, and yeah, it's unnecessary, and I, I get why he did it, but it, it, it's a it's not the strongest part of this episode is that setup, and that and that first little part is is very wrestle of like oh all of our terrible things are magnified although i did like that moment where david Tennant basically says um oh everybody's killing everybody well to be fair you people are terrible (laughs) but the way he phrases is like i like humanity but also you're terrible but it's not your fault because he's making you worse he's amplifying all your worst traits here but it's like walking a little line where the doctor really can't like hate humanity because he obviously loves humanity, but Russell T. Davis, I don't know, maybe hates humanity. And <laughs> and I mean, uh, don't we all some days? <laughs> I know. Well, and twenty first century society, right? And he wants to he yeah. wants to stick he wants to throw in some social commentary there. But but I think we've all said a version of this now. Uh, thematically, the story doesn't really actually pick up that thing. It's a it's like a throwaway bit of satire, and then he's like, no, no, but this is actually about a a puppet man, puppet master who's going to do stuff and challenge our heroes and yeah. so it gets as soon discarded. as Russell gets it out of his system uh through the 14th doctor as his avatar he's done. He can just move he's on. He's had to say let's move on. Yeah. And sometimes I don't know, this is what you get with Russell. I think you get a lot of highs and you get a lot of lows and uh, you know the fa- the father and daughter in um and in the end of time, it's like, why are they there? And it's like, well, there's plot. There's some plot reasons why, but like, it's not the, it's not his best work, but it's in there to look, it's, it's in there for some plot reasons. Okay. Um, some plot reasons and to get something off his chest. And yeah, then, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then he's done. And, and, and to his credit, he's like, okay, that's not, I'm just going to move right along. I did like the puppet stuff. We mentioned it before. I, I like the, the, the babies and I like Donna, I like Donna rhyming Donna with Ghana and smashing a goner and smashing the, the mom, the Mrs. Puppet uh, mm-hmm. into the wall until her head comes off. And then the babies creep and she's like, watch it. Stooky babies. And they all back into the shadows and then she kicks the mom's head and leaves. That's so great. <laughs> I loved that. Donna destroys so a doll, much. a murderous doll. Ah, that was really good. Uh, and the puppet and the puppet show with the companions was also hilarious. So those were mm-hmm. good, great little bits, great little seasoning bits in it. I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. I don't mind that the like the toy maker also just basically because we establish he follows rules, he doesn't cheat, he made a bargain, he's going to stick to the bargain, and then just basically folds up and we put him in a box. Yeah, and it's like it's pretty underwhelming for an ending of someone who is so all powerful, but also. I don't think I wanted the story to continue on more right. than and he and he did. says my legions are coming which is another one of those things too which is like aha a thread for the future goodbye yeah. mm-hmm. he will knock four times man yeah yeah that's his what's tooth. going and in the in one of the I think the commentary track Russell T Davis says his legions are coming basically means that they can have episodes in the future where it's a little more fantasy like where there's a villain that is one of the legions of the toy maker where it's not science fiction. It's more right. fable which I'm fine with because uh, as we all know, it's well established. Doctor who is a genre machine. Every episode is not just a, an anthology of story, but it's an anthology of genre giving him a thing to hang 
more fantasy episodes on. It's fine, but you're right. In the end, he gets folded up like a record album and put in a box to be buried in the black archive, basically. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm ready for the story to be done at that point, but it's also just like, Oh, you defeated me. Bye. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. He's gone. Uh, what else have we not talked about that we should talk about? So I want to circle back to some of the conversation we had early on about uh, the the presence of two doctors and not only the not only whether this was a, a, a an appropriate way to launch Shudigatwa and you know I'm I'm on team that yes it was but there was also some you know you, know, you can look into any media and and interrogate it politically and uh, see if, and find problematic things. You know, I heard some concerns about, you know, here's, here is the first, the first full time um, black doctor uh, providing emotional support to the 14th doctor. Is that a good look? Um, and I want to dig even further and just open this can of worms. Um, neither Russell T Davis nor, uh, uh, David Tennant's doctor uh, really apologized to Donna for what they did at the end of the fourth season, which a lot of people had a huge problem with. Um, mm-hmm. Arguably, these three specials end with the person who um, the doctor forcibly mind wiped and never apologized to bringing him into their home and taking care of him for the foreseeable. Um, and I think it, and I think that intent is great, and I actually like these as endings for the characters. But if you scratch deeply into the surface, there's some stuff that you could, uh, there's some bones that you could pick. I, okay, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of this particular um, axe to grind. I do think that the way the doctor left it is problematic, and I think that. I think Russell T. Davis is not going to give people what they want, right? And I think oh, that, no. I think that part of that is purposeful. And it's like if you're waiting for an apology, you're not going to get one. Um, that said, I can headcanon the hell out of it, which is the moment Donna understands everything that that ha- has gone on and remembers it all, she's seeing the doctor choose between letting her die and letting her live, and that he chose to let her live. And and by the text of the story, those were the only two choices. And when she said, no, you don't erase my mind, what she doesn't say is let me die. She says, don't erase my mind. But he knows that it's one or the other, and he makes a choice. And I know people don't like that, and I get why they don't like that. But I feel like you could read the text a different way if you want to get past it. And you have to choose whether you want to read the text that way or not. But that's that's I, and and so in the moment here where they had that conversation and she says, "I would rather die and save London and save my child," that gives her an opportunity to make that choice in a very particular way, and then she doesn't die. But I feel like that's the biggest, the closest to an apology anybody is ever going to get is that Russell let Donna make the choice to sacrifice herself for a purpose. And not just because she didn't want to go back to who she was before. And I could go in, I could unravel there a lot how people who criticize that moment are implicitly criticizing Donna's regular life by suggesting that 
in a way, death would be a preferable choice, but I'm not because I'm just going <laughs> to let it go. Um, but but if you want Russell to write you an apology for how he eliminated the agency from Donna, the closest you are, I think, ever going to get is, is what you got is what you got in episode mm-hmm. one where she got mm-hmm. to she got to choose and say to the doctor if I have to die to save my daughter so be it and that's the most you'll ever see and then she doesn't die because everybody lives except for those guys in the balloons they don't get to live I <sighs> for me that was enough because I do feel like and this is not the only occasion that the doctor does this is the thing is okay. takes away agency from someone and it's like mm-hmm. she should have the right to choose what she wanted to do in that moment and now she had the choice. She she was given that choice, as you said. So, like, for me, that narratively circles it. And, I, yeah, I sure, an apology would be nice to sit, have them sit and, like, have that real conversation. But it I just don't need it. I feel like the narrative circle of that was sufficient for me to feel satisfied. And Donna kind of getting her life and her memories and moving forward and like the whole resolution i'm like i'm good with it i feel satisfied yeah and and me too i mean i i bring this up more to sort of uh counterpoint for the uh criticism of uh 15th doctor's actions in this story Mm -hmm. to say that well if you scratch the surface you know you can find plenty of problematic things and that doesn't mean that i'm um suggesting that people shouldn't critique uh critique their fiction in that way uh, but intent matters a lot to me, and um, the intent back in 2009 and the intent in these stories today is to tell positive, heartwarming stories about characters we like, and that's that's where I lay my uh, cards down every time. Well, and if the 15th Doctor continues to be emotional support, you know, that would perhaps be a really poor pattern, but if it's sort of in that initial moment and sets it up, it felt okay. Uh, I also felt sometimes like Jody's Doctor 13 was sometimes a little more nurturing because she was a woman, which is very stereotypical. But, you know, we can, like, as you say, have a lot of acts yeah, I mean, to grind. I, I think- and my, my prediction actually is that the 15th Doctor will never look back. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. There's going to be a crossover uh, cameo or something like that down the road, but... Um, he's oh. not going to be, um, he's not going to think about David Tennant, um, oh. again for a very, very, very long time. I think right. New show. Um, I think the goal is to have either the Christmas special or, or season one, episode one, be the one that we all say, just start here. Right. <laughs> and yeah. you can't do that if you're looking backward and, and, and I don't think they will. I was just going to say Jody Whitaker's doctor actually, uh, failed to reveal lots of facts to her companions and took it all, took the burden on herself and made the decisions mm-hmm. with them not having any information. And so even there, it's not great behavior. It's a little different, but it's the same thing. I was like, no, 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 everything's fine. It's like, you're a liar, <laughs> but she's like, nope, everything's fine. Um, what, anything, anything else? Um, I, I, I'll give a couple things that I, that I don't think we mentioned that I want to, Throughout there. First off, as ridiculous as the the laser beam cannon is, it looks great. It's fun that Neil Patrick Harris is on it in a pilot outfit. But also, I really like a Doctor Who regeneration that's caused by a proper, just like go all the way kind of thing, like a massive laser beam that could go to space, shooting a hole through the center of the Doctor. 
That was that's pretty good. Like I like I, I don't I don't want them subtle. I like a I like a giant laser beam from a cannon. Great. Uh, so I appreciated that. Well, and for that, like, well, you know what? Uh, I need a different doctor to play the second game with, so I'm just going to shoot you. Was lovely and very funny to me, even though you know we're shooting the doctor. But I'm like, good on you, toy yeah. maker. And um, I had a. This is the thing you did not expect to hear and might be the only place where this observation is made. Oh boy. Big, big doctor who universe out there. But I did check with our friends, Erica and Steven and Steven missed it. And if Steven missed it, I think maybe lots of people missed it. So I'm going to, I'm going to do it here. Um, David Tennant's first extended appearance as the doctor was not in the Christmas invasion. It was in a special for children in need in 2005 called, uh, I mean, it's got a label on the DVDs, but everybody called it Pudsy Cutaway. Pudsy Cutaway, yeah. Uh, it's a scene after he says Barcelona at the end of Parting of the Ways, but before he falls out of the TARDIS and says, um, Jackie, Mickey, Blimey. Uh, that is him post-regeneration. It's, if, you can, if you can find it, and it is on some of the DVDs, I I really like it because it is the moment where Rose as a character and also kind of the audience gets to ask this new doctor like, no, 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 bring the old doctor back. Why, why are you, uh, what did you do to him? You transported him. You like, she, she's real suspicious of him and he has to prove himself to her. And then he goes kind of crazy and crashes the TARDIS. And that's how the Christmas invasion starts. Um, I bring this up because that first extended moment with David Tennant and now what may be the last scene that David Tennant does as the doctor have one weird thing in common. A chip, Annette, do you know what I'm about to talk about? No, I don't. Okay. I could not believe this when I was like, I, I had to rack my brain. So in the last scene, when they're at the table and Mel comes over and they're hanging out in the backyard, the TARDIS is a garden shed essentially in the back of Donna's house. I assume that that's where the doctor lives. He lives in the TARDIS and this comes out in his bathrobe and, has some scrambled eggs with mm-hmm. with Donna um, and Sean. And he doesn't mind because he's not worried about that man, right? It's fine. It's all good. I love it. Well, uh, and Russell said he originally wrote a very sad thing where they talk about how Wilf died. And Phil Collinson basically said, no, absolutely, on no circumstances are we ending this episode saying that Bernard Cribbins has died. He's going to just be off camera. And he's like, okay. You're right. You're right. I think great. Sh- we're we're ending happy here, people. So Grandpa is uh, out shooting at moles, and there's a very funny line where David Tennant says, "Don't worry, I put a force field on the moles." She says, "You put a force field on the moles?" He said, "Yeah, I love the moles. You love the moles? Yes, I love them. Love the moles." In that first scene in the Pudsy Cutaway, one of the things David Tennant does, one of the first things David Tennant does as the doctor, as he's inventorying his body, he goes, I have a mole on my back. Love the mole. <laughs> Love the mole. <laughs> That's and, very funny. And I racked my brain. I was like, I have heard David Tennant say, Love the mole before. When was that? And then the answer is it's in Puts and Cutaway. <laughs> so you've heard it here first. I have no idea whether Russell T. Davis just has a writing tick where various characters in his shows blurt out, love the mole, uh, <laughs> or whether this is the most extreme, strange reference to the earliest days of David Tennant. But either way, your David Tennant bookends 
It's not, I don't want to go. It's not teeth. It's not Barcelona. It's love the mole. So <laughs> that's it. Anything else from you too? <laughs> that's all I got. I could not possibly top that. My God. I was going to say something about Bonnie Langford. No, no. We're stopping we should, with love no, the mole. We, we should say Mel was a computer programmer in classic Doctor Who and she never did anything on a computer. And this is the first time ever in class in, in Doctor Who history where Mel, the character played by Bonnie Langford, uh, who also gets to sing because she's like a star of stage and screen. Um, uh, she gets to be a computer programmer and know things about computers. So that was that's you talk about your apologies. That's Russell T. Davis writing wrongs from the 80s. Right there. Mm-hmm. And I get the sense that we're going to be seeing Bonnie Langford more, which is great because we know now that Kate Stewart just hires all the old companions to work for her at unit, which is great. I love it. I love it. Bring them all back. But it yeah, was great that to was see great. That's very fun. Um, can I say something looking forward? Yes, please. Uh, so in my opinion, Russell T. Davis does not write a great Christmas special. How interesting. In the past. Yeah. I think that Moffat wrote yeah. better Christmas specials mm-hmm. that were more Christmassy and festive and mm-hmm. sort of like a little gift of of Christmas joy, whereas, you know, Titanic's crashing and people dying and Runaway Brides. Runaway Runaway Bride is probably one of the better ones. It's not very Christmassy. It's not very Christmassy. We do have shooting Santas, but it doesn't doesn't give you like the feeling of, you know, like the Christmas Carol. Uh it's just not called a Christmas Carol, is it? Yeah. Uh, anyways, that one is like that one's such a great one, but it's also they just the Moffat ones have that Christmassy feel. So I'm very curious about what this Christmas special will be like because I feel very excited by the trailer and what it looks like, but also is it going to maybe the you know I'm glad we're having. I can't wait to see it. It'll be fun. Will it be a different kind of Christmas special? For this era of Russell T. Davis. I I gotta tell you that goblins on a sky arc are not my aesthetic, but neither was the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe, so we will see. I I think Erica is not going to like the Christmas special, guys, because it's very steampunk, it seems to me. Uh, Those goblins, they seem very steampunk to me. If they're like played, like, you know, are they ugly little elves? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, this is so, yeah, the, the Russell sometimes. But I don't think it'll be as festive. It doesn't feel yeah, like it's going to be festive. Sometimes he, he, he tr- dresses it up in the trappings of Christmas, but he's really just telling a different story. Whereas I agree with you. This is one of those cases where, like, uh, I don't want to. I saw somebody said they think that, that Russell T. Davis is a better showrunner than Stephen Moffat, and Stephen Moffat is a better writer than Russell T. Davis, and I think that's incredibly reductive. But the, I get what they're saying on one level, um, that I think I think Russell is better. He's a good. He's a very very talented writer who is also incredibly skillful at seeing the big picture, and I think Stephen Moffat is also an incredibly talented writer um, and not quite as strong as seeing the big picture, if that makes sense. And I, I, I think without, I, I don't want to like quantify it, but I feel like there's some truth in that. But here's what I will say. And Annette, I agree completely. I think like almost, not quite, almost all of Stephen Moffat's Christmas episodes are better than than Russell T. Davis's Christmas episodes. Agreed. And they're certainly less Christmassy. So 
we'll see. Also, this is a the first adventure of the Doctor. So what's that of Shudigawa? Mm-hmm. Like before we get to episode one of season one. So I'm fascinated. I like what purpose will this episode serve? My guess is it's just meant to be a big, uh, enjoyable, fun, loud adventure that also makes you want to watch season one. But um, I don't know. I, I My expectations are um, high for Shurigatwa, but otherwise sort of like, okay, like we'll see. We'll see what yeah. it does. Yeah. There's a whole season that comes after that. So, well, I, I'm I'm always an optimist. I'm excited to see it, and I'm yeah. sure, regardless, I based on what we've seen at least last three episodes, I'm very optimistic and hopeful. And it's we'll in two weeks. Christmassy. It's yeah. in two weeks. We don't have to wait very long. These these, these three specials that so happen so late. My God, this is luxury. I that know. there's just more Doctor so Who in two Doctor weeks. Who. You gotta wait like whatever we have to wait sixteen days in between. So that's great. I my question is when is season one gonna come? I don't know. Do we know? Are there rumors? Is it January? Is it March? I don't know. Did I read here something about April? Hmm. Is that in my head? And is that a lie? I don't know. I don't know, but I, know. Uh, I think the general expectation is spring. Spring. And we will just right. have to see. Okay, well, I mean, four episodes in, in six weeks is pretty good. That's a pretty good interregnum. Mm-hmm. I'm good for a little while. All right, well, we'll end it there. Annette, thank you so much for sitting in for Erica. It was great to talk to you about Doctor Who again, even though we weren't in person this time. We've done several of these in person. But Have fun. It was good. Thank you for doing all your homework and watching all of the VAM. That's the value-add media for those I who know. don't know what VAM is. It's all the extras. It's a lot of work. I know. It's fun. a tough job. you got to watch a lot of YouTube videos and some other stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Chip Sutterth, as always, thank you for being here. And I look forward to finding some way to talk to you on Christmas, as is our tradition. I've been doing a Christmas well, since 2010. I've been doing Christmas episodes of Doctor Who as a flashcast. So why stop now? Or, or New Year's. We had a break. We're back on Christmas, I should say. Mm-hmm. We're back on Christmas for the first time in a while. So that should be fun. Why stop now? Have a laptop. Have Audio Technica ATR twenty one hundred will travel. Yeah, same. Not the same microphone, but the same idea. I'll be elsewhere, but you know, we find a way. I recorded many Doctor Who flashcasts in the guest room at my mom's house. All right, thank you to all of you out there for listening to the Doctor Who flashcast. We will be back at Christmas, um, and uh, we'll see you then. But until then, just remember, love the moles, love them, love the moles. Doctor Who flashcast. Only in the conqueror of the